I probably should start this by saying that I've, I'm desperate to live in America. I, I really would prefer to live somewhere that's bigger, the people are more spread out. I think that the the landscape is much more interesting. I'm, I'm a bit down on England generally, I have to be honest. I'm one of those. Sounds like it. Sounds I'm a like self-deprecating it, yeah. Brit. That's, that's what well, I am. I wake, I wake up some mornings and wish that I was living in Cornwall or something. So uh, we could maybe do a house swap sometime or something. That sounds <laughs> like a plan. And, and the one thing that always, it's a really trivial thing, but the one thing that always worried me about moving to America would be not being able to get tea in like in the way that it should be like you know you go from one country to another and the thing that you have i mean even if you have a mcdonald's in england compared to america it's different and i've always worried about tea if i came to america and uh and to have this podcast just before we get started me and you two brits separated by an entire ocean and you messaged me and said that you'll be you'll be right on as soon as you've made yourself a cup of tea as i'm stood by the (laughs) kettle making myself a cup of tea made me feel uh like like that's a good sign that you're actually out there making i'll tell you what you've 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 hit the hot button as they say there's one thing that you can engage me on perhaps even more than photography it's tea because having endured 20 years living (laughs) in this country uh i i I think we could do a a separate podcast about tea and the deficiencies of this culture when it comes to uh understanding it making it selling it so here I am. I'm pleased to announce, uh, perhaps we can get some sponsorship, that I'm drinking my Yorkshire Gold and we're having a chat. <laughs> that's the, I mean, that's perfect. I had one cup of tea ever on stateside, which was actually in Canada on my honeymoon, and it was so bad that I just poured it away. It was probably Lipton. It's disgusting. It's it is horrendous. absolutely disgusting. Don't get me started. Well, anyway, let's talk photography. We'll talk tea on a separate podcast, the new Great. Chris Kyle Tea podcast that I'll put together. But um. So let's start off the way I always do, which is just how you found photography in the first place. So what was it that, that got you to pick up a camera for the first time? As I recall, I don't think this is going to be a terribly unique story, uh, but I, as I recall, um, I was in middle school in, in Exeter. Uh, I was probably around about 10, mm-hmm. age 10. And uh, we, we had a fantastic art teacher. And, and of course, all the schools back then had the dark room and they actually taught art and they cared about it and we we short story is we made a pinhole camera and um everybody had to bring in you know some sort of body for the camera mine was a sort of catering size marmalade tin and that was the body of the camera and we made a pinhole camera we made a photograph in my case it was of the sports field and uh, we developed it and I, i i didn't really look back since that moment i mean that's the earliest sort of memory i have and then we had some cameras knocking around um, for various reasons, and I just started using them, and uh, it sort of went from there. Really, well, I've noticed a lot from from. I'm on a big run of recording at the moment, and I'm about 100. And I've got to check 178 episodes in. So right. I've noticed that a lot of the uh, experienced photographers that I've spoken to, especially those that are that are working in the industry have a break from photography at some point early on. So they kind of discover mm-hmm. it, like it, and then either like college or a career gets in the way for a short while and then they rediscover it. So have you, since that start, have you always been in love with photography or did you need some time away? That, that was exactly my experience. Uh, never fell out of love with it. Just, the, you know, the sort of the, the dials and gauges went up and down a bit in terms of being uh I guess wanting to do it or being able to do it. I mean, I, I when I was going to when I was applying for college, which is what I call from age eighteen. So 
uh, after high school or sixth form or whatever it's called. Um, I actually applied for, there's quite a well-known course in Newport Gwent, uh, which is the documentary course um, there. And I didn't get on it and I was completely gutted. And I ended up going to do an advertising course in Bristol, which eventually led me on the path of uh, a career in advertising, during which I never really lost the <clears throat> the bug for photography. Uh, and of course, having a family kind of creates moments to photograph in different ways. But I, I found towards the end of my career in photography, which finished about 10 or 11 years ago uh, of my own volition, that I was traveling a huge amount all over the world. And I, I ended up wanting to and eventually spending more time in the places I was visiting photographing and actually having meetings. So that seemed to me to be a pl pretty clear indication to uh, pick up the pace again. And as, as far as there seems to be a bit of a fork in the road for a lot of people when they find the camera and they start mm. to fall in love with the camera. And I think it really does divide people quite strongly. Wanting to photograph people or being appalled or terrified at the idea of photographing people. So at what stage in this development from, from that first start did you kind of find photographing people to be something that you wanted to do? Well, I, I, I love... I love photographing people and I, it's not necessarily just for the photography of it. So there are sort of various converging themes here. I think one of the reasons, one of the things I was told when I didn't get a place at the uh, documentary course in Newport, which at that time was the place to go was, you know, I was 18. I, I'd, I'd had a, uh, not a sheltered life, but I, I hadn't really been out in the world a great deal. And, and what they told me was, the thing is, you can obviously take photographs. That's not a problem. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have got the interview. But what you need to do is you need to be out in the world a bit. You need to experience the world and bring that back into your photography. And they said a lot of the people that we have on the course are people who are maybe in their mid to late 20s who have done a bit of that. And so I, I took that to heart. I went out literally into the world. I mean, I traveled many, many countries in my advertising career. And during the time that I was getting into advertising and during the time that I was in advertising, the core of the core of that job is essentially, um, uh, it sounds a little bit dystopian, but basically the idea of advertising is to understand people to the extent that you can create work that impacts their behavior somehow. So it may be to carry on buying a product. It may be to buy a new product. It may be to change behavior in other ways. That's essentially what advertising is to me. In order to do that, you have to understand people. You have to be able to connect with people. You have to be able to generate insights about people. And for me, that's the parallel. So I never really lost that passion. You know, when I was, I went to Exeter College between the age of 16 and 18 to do A-levels. And the two things I really, really loved were communications and geography. And they were the things that captured my imagination. And they're the things that still capture my imagination. And I, I would maintain that they are the things that capture my imagination throughout my advertising career. So essentially, you never really, it wasn't like there was a moment where I got into photographing people. I think that, you know, wherever it started, as I assume from an extremely early age, I just became very interested in human behavior and now communicating human behavior and personality through photography. So, you know, whether it's studying communications, working in advertising or photographing people, for me, it comes down to a very, very similar route. 
I mean, yesterday I had a pretty lengthy conversation with uh, a Ukrainian ballet photographer based in Montreal. I make sure I get all of that right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that he had previous history working in ballet, that it gave him a better understanding of, you know, timing and form. And you can't, you can't photograph ice hockey if you don't understand the rules of ice hockey. I mean, you can, but you'll probably do a pretty poor job. You can't be a, a, a sort of photojournalist and not have your finger on the pulse of current events and, and what's going yeah. on and, and so on. So where you're talking there about kind of working within the psychology of people to change behavior, were you sort of externally to figuring out photography as we all are the whole time that we're doing it? Were you also making an active effort to kind of understand psychology of people a little bit? Uh, I mean, that was essentially a lot of the job was to understand uh, people's psychology as it relates to brands and products. Um, I, I'm not quite clear on your question. Are you talking about did I in my own time study, you know, yeah. to understand psychology? I mean, I, I think I did not not in a literal sense, like I didn't, you know, study it on a course or pick up a book about psychology. I mean, I've read a number of books about psychology, but um I think if you, you know, if you look at reading material, things that interest, you know, movies that you watch, programs that you consume, uh, you know, a lot of it comes back to the same thing. You know, there, there's that thread there. The very earliest, the earliest book I remember in communications really getting hooked by was a fantastic book that you can probably buy for a couple of quid on eBay now. It's a book called Man Watching by Desmond Morris. And it is the most incredible, it's a kind of one of those books you can just pick up and put down, pick up and put out. It's somewhere between a sort of, I guess it's a textbook really, but it's it's way more accessible than that. And it's just full of like fascinating things. And I remember one thing, you know, going back to the point we were talking about America and the UK, you know, that I remember so many individual things about it, about that book, which I still have a copy of. You know, the fact that American men sit in a very different way to European men. You know, when they're sitting, European men often cross their legs. They often sit in a in a more of a sort of compact way. Mm-hmm. And American men, this is obviously a massive generalization, but the book the book suggests that American men sit in a much more expansive way, and they're more likely to sit open legged. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a much you know the, the 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 body behavior in different cultures is absolutely fascinating. You know, so you know, so I, I books like that have stayed with me. From when I discovered them to now. I know? mean, you mentioned about being told that you weren't, I don't want to get this wrong, but kind of not worldly enough and you need to go out and... Well, that's correct. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. And to get told that at such a young age, but it, it feels like, I mean, I'm kind of doing a bit of a generalization here myself, but to look at the work that you're creating and especially the book, which we will get to in time, that seems to have been quite a key moment in terms of forming, is, is that something that sticks with you now that you like, you're still trying to see as much as you can and experience as much as you can as a way to benefit not only your photography, but just yourself? Well, I, the easy answer to that is absolutely yes. I, I'm still as curious and as passionate about like finding stuff out and discovering new things as I ever was. I think I absolutely have took that comment that they made to heart you know i mean i've i'm very lucky you know during my career or during my life i've been able to travel to i don't know 40 countries and you know a lot of this comes down to 
you know, one of the questions I get most often is how, you know, how do you approach people? You know, how do you photograph strangers? Um, and I would say the same thing. It's like, well, I just knock on their door or I just say hello to them. You know, it's just for me, it's the normal course of social interaction. You know, I know a lot of people are challenged by that and don't feel so comfortable with it. But I think one of the benefits of being a bit more worldly is that you have that ability to engage on that level. And I think if you can do that and you can hold your own in a conversation, then I would suggest that most times you're going to get better photographs. I mean, let's, let's talk about photographing strangers because I think that the, the trepidation that people have is in the approach, right? Once you're past mm-hmm. that initial approach, you're, you, everything else is pretty straightforward. You'll know fairly early on their disposition and what you can do to kind of work your way in there or if it's just not going to be possible at all. I've had situations myself where there's been people through my line of work that absolutely don't want to be photographed and the fact that you're a photographer is a huge sort of red flag to them for one reason or another. Yeah. Sort of your your approach to building trust then with people, is it, I mean, are you like setting the camera away from the topic of conversation? Do you get to know them first before you introduce photography or is photography the thing that you lean in with? Uh, It's nearly always better to get to know them first in my experience. Uh, I mean, everything I'm saying is really just from my experience. Like I completely understand it's not possible for everybody to work the same way and, or or have the same kind of backgrounds and uh, opportunities. But in my case, it's almost always better to get to know them first. Occasionally having the camera gives you some form of, um, legitimization i guess mm-hmm. this it's it's an obvious reason why you're engaging with that person and i know that i know for, you know for some photographers for example who photograph large format which i don't um it's it's a sort of key to engaging a conversation because the the the, the equipment is interesting enough that people want to have a conversation about it and so i think that you know once you can have that conversation um, I think that's, as you rightly say, that's a long way towards, you know, getting a great photograph, assuming that you can technically, you know, get your act together, which most people can these days. Um, you know, I think, I mean, one of the, probably the biggest body of the body of work that I've had most questions about in relation to what we're talking about is, is the, uh, Donald Trump supporters who I photographed in 2016, uh, in a part of the world where I live, which is in the Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. of New York. It's about 120 miles north of the city, but it's a very rural area. And there were many people who had made their own signs um, and put them out on their driveways or nailed it to a tree or whatever they'd done with it. And I, I I've went out, I literally drove around, walked around, found these signs and uh, approached the people. And, you know, there were, there were some pretty kind of threatening scenarios but they tended to be more visually threatening like signs that were up about watch out for the dog or whatever but you know once once i'd managed to find the people um to me it it seemed like the most natural thing in the world i mean i i my politics are diametrically opposed um you know i have a strange accent um (laughs) <laughs> they're not used to people do, they're not used to people doing what i'm doing it was a very well it still is but it was a very kind of uh, uh how can i put it explosive type type of environment you know mm-hmm. we know now history history has shown you know how how much passion and anger there, there was uh, and still is um but 
you know, the thing is, one of the keys for me, and this is just, I'm going on a bit, but just to give you an example, was that at the same time, the whole Brexit thing was happening, which I'm also opposed to. But um, it allowed, you know, most people that I, that I was talking to had heard something about it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, here was something that we could talk about that actually was entirely um, related. The two things were very much related. Yeah. The reasons for them, this is just my opinion, the reasons for them were, were in my opinion, related um, and the feelings around it. And, and so, you know, I'm still in touch with most of those people now. And I, I'm, I, I gave you that long-winded answer because I think it's important to express that photographing people is not, to me, it shouldn't be a transaction like going in to buy a bar of chocolate at the supermarket and walking out where you have no care, interest or whatever, most times of who's taking your money or whatever. And of course, now it's a machine. That's a transaction. When I photograph people, what I try and think about is, well, I, I might know these people for a long time, you yeah. know, and I still do. I would say that most of those people I photograph for that project, I'm still in contact with for whatever reason. I mean, the it kind of leads me on to the question that I've had to rewrite the most, and I still am not really happy with the phrasing that I have for it. So I'm probably going to have to work this out a little bit as I go. But one of the things that I, I actually wrote this more to do with the images of uh, the the book as opposed to the Trump one, but I think they actually probably relate more to the Trump one, just the way that I approached it in the initial part. You, you, as a photographer, you always want to kind of impart a little bit of your own personality into what you're doing. That's that's. I mean, you can't really help but do that. And in probably in trying to not impart your personality, you'll end up putting more into it by being overly aware of yourself, you end up kind of putting more of a fingerprint onto what you're doing. But when it comes to photographing someone's environment or someone's politics, how do you have your own personality within the photos but not influence them within the image? Because if you're photographing someone in their environment or someone, let's say, within their politics, and that's kind of the surrounding theme of, of the image, if you don't have... If you either have or don't have similar political leanings to them. If you if you don't have, it could create a tension that maybe changes the visual of of that person. If you do agree with them, you can almost exaggerate what they are, which I think is a problem media wide today. Is the exaggeration of certain of certain things? How do you kind of photograph a stranger and let them show you who they are as opposed to influence it? Okay, so I understand the question. I understand why you struggle with the question in terms of defining it, but I understand the, what, okay. what you're asking. So um, I guess I have a couple of strands of work. One is one is the sort of work we're talking about now, which are essentially my own self-initiated studies, which to me is my sort of contribution of photographing people in this part of the world at this time. So I, I have that kind of thread to what I do. The other thread to what I do uh, photographically is is I do work for newspapers and magazines still. So, you know, I work for The Guardian, The New York Times, did a job for The Observer recently. Um, and essentially that in the last, you know, when I when I got back into photography properly uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, I was working on a lot of assignments for publications like that. And so there's a certain uh, approach and kind of ethical code that comes with that. 
Mm. Uh, objectivity, objectivity being at the heart of it. Um, the thing that sort of doesn't come with that is that, well, actually, this is not fair. I was going to say, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing was more sort of feature based. So I would, you know, go to a farm and photograph uh, a process at a farm or, um, you know, I would uh, photograph a politician. Um, I find these things very, I mean, it's all very interesting, but I also, you know, they're, they're really fulfilling a need for people to see, see what's happening around that situation in, in a way, in, in, in the worst example, it's like illustrating the words, right? Mm-hmm. Then I got more into um, being asked to photograph portraits of people to go with features. So I, you know, I did one, I did one, a few months ago of a town near here that's had terrible trouble with water contamination. And I photographed a woman whose uh, son had been basically poisoned by bad water, um, which had been poisoned by um, manufacturing process in the town, chemicals in the, in the ground and so on. And she had passed something to her young son through her breast milk. And so I, I had to do a, a portrait of, uh, of uh, that lady up in, in a town near me. And, you know, so more and more I, I got into that. So I, I'm telling you all of that because I sort of carry with me this need to try and be as objective as possible, whether I agree with the person or not. So in the case of Trump, the Brexit thing, I, I heartily disagree with them. And if they asked me about Brexit or they asked me about Trump, I would be very honest with them and say, no, it's not my, that's not what I would believe in. Mm -hmm. And actually I'm a green card holder. I'm not a citizen, so I don't vote here. Um, Not that really changed anything. So the point I'm going to make to you is that, yes, there are differences of opinion. Um, Yes, I agree that photography of this type is, there's a huge sort of autobiographical element. I would suggest that it's not very wise to take any individual photograph and say, I can see Chris in that photograph or I can see Richard in that photograph. That may be true in some cases. I think you have to look at somebody's work over a period of time and say, okay, I can see some themes and and what's going on in this body of work. But what I do think is very important, whether you agree or disagree with somebody, is to have this sense of, objectivity, which I carry with me anyway, because of course I'm not allowed to do anything to the photographs that I supply to newspapers, um, or I'm not allowed to influence anything or receive anything or all of that. Um, but what you have to do, in my opinion, is you have to find some common ground. And I think the common ground so often is, is honesty. Like we, you know, and it's, it's in this sort of hyper polarized world that we live in, the thing that has really changed a lot is that it's been it's become so much more difficult to disagree with people and yet still have a conversation yeah and i think what's really important is that when you're making a photograph in that situation you need to be able to be the sort of person that can disagree with somebody and still have a conversation because a portrait in a way it's like a good conversation you know there's a back and forth it's a collaboration it's mm-hmm. not a transaction and so I, I think personally, obviously my own opinion about myself is that I can, I can often, I can most often do that. I can most often get myself in a situation where I can find some common ground with somebody and have a discussion 
and make photographs regardless of whether I agree with them vehemently or disagree with them vehemently. And I think that's the thing. And people talk about truth. You know, there, there are probably many truths, you know, and, and so is it a true photograph for that person? Is it not? Well, maybe there are many true facets that could be photographed for me. And it's maybe a, a nuance, but, you know, just make sure it's honest, that it's an honest rendition of that person. And for me, that honesty is based in the ability to, to find, find some common ground, you know, and just be able to talk about things, whether you agree or not. And I found all of those people, I mean, nobody kicked me out. What all they wanted to do was to have a conversation about it, which was great. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the the nail on the head is is the inability for people of contrasting views to actually you don't yeah. have to find you don't even have to find common ground, but to just talk. And to yeah. and, and more importantly to listen, which I think is a skill that's completely been lost and right. Considering the the generations coming through, I am quite concerned about that ever kind of rearing its head ever again. If if you don't mind me saying, I definitely feel I'm massively overmatched in this in terms obviously of experience, but I'm certainly not. I, I don't feel like I'm uh, in the same realm in terms of worldliness and education, but I'm I'm doing my best to keep up. So if I do sound stupid yeah. at any point, I do apologise. Uh, no, no, not at all. A little bit of a side note, because I'm kind of curious, given your history, what do you make of kind of the disposable nature of modern photography then? With so many pictures being taken by just about everybody, every picture that seems to be taken seems to have to, there has to be a need for it to be seen with an immediacy. And people especially photographing themselves more than they're photographing anyone else. In terms of when it comes to phones, people are very particular now about self-image to the point where they're not really delegating the need for other people to take their picture. And I mean, in England, unless they're drunk, essentially, it's quite difficult to, 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 for someone to give up their own self-image away from their own phone. What do you make of that? Do you feel like that's potentially good or bad? Uh, just, just very quickly to go back on one thing about the worldliness. I, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest I'm the most worldly person. I'm just, and actually I, one thing I haven't mentioned, which I should, is that I think worldliness does not necessarily mean going out and checking the boxes on everywhere you can possibly go. I, to me, you know, I I ended up in a place where actually most of the photography that I do is within fifty to one hundred miles of my own doorstep. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. But you know, to me, worldliness is just is more of a point of view than a sort of achievement. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and it can come through reading as much as it can come through traveling or you know, yeah, anyway. 100%. So, so to your question about, uh, modern photography, I think you called it. Um, mm. I, you know, first of all, I don't think anybody's going to stop it. The technology has given everybody the opportunity to do, you know, what they're doing and, 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 and things happen the way they will. And, you know, I think it's made, you know, there the are always two sides of the coin on this. So it's made it possible for everybody to make a decently, a technically decent photograph. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that just raises the game in terms of, okay, well, how, how can I make a difference in that environment? So I'm not seeing it as a bad or good thing. I mean, I can highlight certain aspects about it. Like, I don't think it's particularly healthy that there's so much time spent and that people are so self-image aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know there's much I can do about that personally. So I just try and think about, well, what is it that I'm doing 
that is going to make a difference somehow. Um, that's going to cut through some of all of that. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, you know, I think, I think you've also got to see these things potentially as inevitable evolutions of a medium that is still only, what is it? 200 years old or something. Right. Not for, not very old in the context of other media. Yeah. But I think you've also got to break it down a bit, you know, so my, my daughters are both in their early twenties now. And, and, and it was interesting seeing them as they experimented with, uh, film photography, um, because in a way it, it, it became obvious to me that they were treating it like a different medium, that they had digital cameras and then they would pick up one of my film cameras and have a go with that. Or, or they were lucky enough to both attend a school that also had a dark room, believe it or not. Um, so, so they were able to experiment with that. And I, 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 what I observed was that they, they sort of saw them as different things. If you like, they're different instruments in the same orchestra. And so is a, so is a mobile phone and so is a computer, you know, a laptop. So I, I think there's no point fighting it. I think it's about just saying, listen, these, these things are inevitable. I think there's way too much hang up on, you know, the technology, the technology and the gear side of it. Like who gives a shit really at the end of the day? Um, it, it, it's simply about saying, bring it back to your own situation and what can you do and how can you do work that you feel is healthy and is contributing something and is doing what you want it to do. And, you know, I, I, I know we we'll talk about the book in a minute, but when I did the book, you know, 276 people photographed and not a single person in that book or in that, in, the, in that series saw that photo, saw their own photograph before it was published. So I tell you that because not a single person insisted on seeing the photograph of them before it was published. And they all signed model releases. They all did the whole thing. So, you know, I think there's a way of doing it. Sorry, this is very long-winded, but it's a huge subject. And I think that I try not to get bogged down in it, really. Well, long-winded is always good on a podcast. We, you know, it's, <laughs> Maybe, I prefer yeah. long-winded to yes and no. <laughs> it depend, depends who's doing it, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like the two negatives that really stand out, one being significantly bigger than the other, is we're getting to a point with an inability for delayed gratification, like people need mm -hmm. something immediately. And I think it's part of mobile photography or cell phone photography or however it's defined. I think that's part of just not that it's, it's all facets of life. Now, if you can't have something delivered on the same day, it's not worth your time. If you can't <clears throat> immediately get something the minute that you desire it, it's almost like it's too old and it's it's unwanted and it creates this, yeah. you know, you can look at like the Amazon model, which is a, a separate discussion in itself, much like tea. But the, the side of it that worries me quite a bit is the mental health side of it. I think that, mm. that there will be an issue growing with maybe body dysmorphia or, you know, just people that are, too obsessed with self-image, too vapid, too self-focused that I, I think it's going to, I don't think human beings are meant to look at themselves as much as what they are. And it's a very bad focus, especially for younger people. I, I definitely don't think it would have done me any favors. Um, I'm definitely not calling myself a young person as I turned 34 this year. And it's, um, it's starting to look like I've witnessed about 34 murders. I'm looking so old. <laughs> well, 
Don't worry, don't worry. You're you're way off where I am, yeah. So don't worry about. Ah, <laughs> oh, but I'm in England. We age much quicker. You managed to escape to somewhere where you can you can uh, take it Forever take your time young. with it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So let's go to the book then. There's, there's, I'll just open the floor for you here rather than get too in, in the weeds straight away. So just the inception of the book, what was the idea? Um, it actually relates to something that you, you mentioned a little while ago, uh, a short while ago about, you know, photography now that, you know, billions of photographs taken and, and you know, what's happening. So I, I actually, I've just recently moved house, but for the purpose of this, let's pretend I'm still there. So, uh, and it's only a few miles from where I am now. So I lived uh, between 2005 and a month ago um, in, a, in a town called Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, which is not in Belgium. It's in upstate New York. Uh, it is named after the Belgian town, however. And um, for a while, I had been thinking about creating a series of portraits, um, and I was considering different themes or different ways of doing that. And um, I realized that it was the town's 200th anniversary, which in English terms is not really any great shakes. But in America, uh, in America, that's kind of pretty, it's a pretty momentous milestone, 200 years. So um, I was talking to, uh, as they call them around here, one of the old timers, and he ran into his house and he grabbed something out of a cupboard that must have been in his kitchen, I imagine. And it was, a beautiful old black and white photograph on a piece of card. And he showed me and he said, this is the Smith family in front of the old town garage, which is where they used to keep the snow plows and this, that, and the other. And he said, and there's, you know, Stephen Smith and there's John Smith and there's Mrs. Smith. And then there's the three cousins here and, and turn it over on the back. And it said, you know, 1912 or whatever it said. And it really struck me entering into this bicentennial year that, you know, yes, we are taking billions of photographs every day, but nobody prints anything out. They're all consigned to people's attics, basements, rubbish bins when, when the phone dies. Uh, like how many people actually do download their phones to a hard drive? Probably none. Um, nobody's making prints, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, how about I embark on on a project to photograph some of the people who are in the town during the bicentennial, just a snapshot of people. So that basically there would be something for people to look back on, um, like who was in the town during the bicentennial, because we, we have these fantastic old photographs and they're all well-preserved on pieces of card or whatever, and we'll have nothing, absolutely zero. So, um, I basically set off on that. Uh, the bicentennial was 2018. I actually started at the end of 2017 because there were some subject matters that I wanted to to get done, knowing that I couldn't go all the way to December 31st in 2018 uh, because if I wanted to like have an exhibition or something, I'd have to finish in like October. So anyway, so I embarked on the project. Um, I we'll talk about process in a minute, I'm sure, but basically I ended up photographing 276 people. That's roughly 5% of the town's population, which is 5,400 ish. And, um, then I, at the conclusion of the project, uh, we had an exhibition, which, uh, was in a local sculpture park. They have a gallery 
we used all our window space, gallery space, and we had 300 people show up, which was incredible. And what was really lovely about it is that it was all walks of life. It brought all of these diverse groups of people together at a time. You have to remember this was the end of 2018, at a time where you know, the divisions were really evident. And this is a town that if you if you said, how does this town vote, it probably would be 50-50. So um, it wasn't political. It was just about bringing lots of people together. We had the exhibition. And then essentially a few months after that, um, through a mutual friend, I was introduced to a publishing company called Daylight Books. And Daylight Books said, uh, should we do a book of some of the photographs? So we basically did do that. Uh, we have 55 main plates, uh, so full-page photographs of, of portraits that we selected as an edit. But I was very keen to make sure everybody was included. So we did a big fold-out at the back of the book to include everybody who wasn't on one of the main pages. So, again, sorry, that was long-winded, but that's my summary thus far. Again, there's nothing wrong with long-winded, and, right. and it's uh, it's always helpful to get as much context as possible. I mean, there's, there's uh, the one trouble you, you're always going to have being European, and I know that people don't like to think that the UK is European, but we are, mm-hmm. is, and I watch a lot of American sports, is the pronunciations of some of the names can be fascinating. So I'm probably going to butcher this for the American audience, but I believe the lady's name is Jean Neifler or Neifella. That's close. Niefler, yes. Niefler, okay. So it's more down the Germanic route then of how to pronounce that. Yes, yes, yes. The the portrait of her holding an old portrait of, I'm assuming, a family member and a cow. I'm I'm assuming looking at it. Is one yep. of one of the images that really it is one of the really the images that were on this call. I, I felt like I had to kind of pester you into coming on to this because it's 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 such a wonderful picture and it has that it has the feeling of what you're describing where you, you saw this original old image and then you're kind of doing another sort of notch in, in the timeline. And this has both of those timelines kind of within it. And it's really what photographs should be used for more than, than what they are is, is kind of documentation as opposed to vanity. And whilst it is a very, very lovely picture, it's, it has the documentation side of it. So, Let's just let's just approach it. And how, who? How did you know who you wanted to approach for this project? So you've you've really opened up the Pandora's box of long windedness. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, just a, just a quick thing. The con the the context historically of this area is that it was, uh, as most people know, Manhattan was kind of. Um, you know, the, the the British were there, then the Dutch were there, and then the British again. And then, you know, and then there were lots of German communities up in this area, Dutch communities, the big farmers, you know. So there are a lot of very interesting names. I did, uh, going back to our point about kind of worldliness, I, I, I read a number of books about this area. I'm not a great historian. I'm not a great reader of history at all. But I found a fantastic book about the area that's really engaged me. And I, I ended up... Um, contacting the the guy who wrote it who was a professor at a local university and i i had a chat with him this is actually 10 years ago and i told him i was going to do a project on the hudson and then um literally eight years later <clears throat> I, I that one didn't get off the ground um and eight years later um i did this project and in the end i went back to him and i said you probably don't remember me he did remember me 
and uh, said, we had that great conversation. I told you I was going to do a project. Well, I've done it. And he said, well, that was 10 years ago. I said, well, yes, these things take time. <laughs> and he ended up, I'm telling you that because he ended up writing the um, essay at the back of the book about the area. But so just for context on the names, there's a lot of German, English, Dutch history here in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the names, and I, I included the names in the captions for that reason. So I just want to talk about Jean Niefler for a second. Um, she, uh, every one of these photographs has a story. So I, you know, I'm just so lucky that I, I really, the engagements with these people were fantastic. And I, I, you know, Jean, I'd arranged to photograph Jean, um, I'd been in touch with her daughter and her daughter said, okay, come around at, you know, four o'clock or whatever time it was. And Jean will meet you at the old farmhouse. So I, I, I'd never met Jean before, but the family, that family is, is a very well-known, long-established old farming family in this area. And, uh, I rolled up, um, you know, I got out of the car and I tend to just not carry, you know, I just get out of the car and I'm ready to say hello. Anyway, she, she comes out of the farmhouse, old farmhouse, and um, she greets me and I greet her. And, you know, she she's obviously, she knows what the project is. Um, we have a little chat about it. And she says to me, would you mind if I held this? And she revealed that she was holding a photograph that you mentioned, which is her, her husband uh, with a cow. He was a, a beef farmer. Um, and his name is Walt Niefler and he is extremely well known in this area, but he had died a few months before that. Right. And for her, I mean, I'm thinking, I think about it. It was such a special moment. That's what she wanted to do. And I thought to myself, I, this is just so wonderful. Like I don't need to do anything. All I need to do is find, find an environment to, for us to photograph and the rest will happen. And that's, that's, that that photograph is no more or less complicated than that. And I think that it's actually the reason you opened the Pandora's box is because it's, again, I get a lot of questions about this. You know, I didn't, I didn't ask anybody to carry anything, to wear anything. I would show up, we would find a spot. Now it's not quite that fortuitous. I do a lot of research. I know the area. I know where some good spots are. I'll get to your question in a minute about how I contacted people. But it's really important to understand that there's, there's as little intervention in these things as possible for me. These are not hugely set up photographs. For a start, they're all in natural light or ambient light if they're inside. There's no, there's no flash strobe, anything used. And for me, I just wanted to put 100% of myself into the relationship with the person. And I think you've picked on, a, I, I'm, so happy that you picked that photograph to talk about because you know it really does reveal a lot about the whole project i think well i mean one of the things i did note was was obviously not mm. being on scene and and the way the photography is you can i think you can tell something's ambiently lit compared to when there's some extra production involved that's probably like the the way i could phrase it and i was curious if that was a um, a sort of an artistic choice in the sense of the relationship you'd have with the person making them more comfortable or if that was going to be more of a environmental choice in the sense of not wanting to change the vision of the environment that they're in and 
one of the things that makes the images so profound is is the environment. It is it's as much a portrait of what's around them as as what they are. And I think these are these are all fantastically characterful people. And you could definitely photograph them in a studio on a very simple backdrop with some strobes and get a very compelling portrait. But to include the environment means that this cake has icing too, so to speak. So it was just strictly down to you focusing on on the person, not it wasn't to do with the visual side of things. Uh, essentially correct. Yeah, let me get back to this. I do just want to just finish talking about how I found people and I'll get back to that. So yeah. I, I would email people, knock on people's doors, uh, write letters to people, call people, basically any of any of the ways that you can contact people as normal human beings, I did it. And uh, very few people said no, which was <laughs> as, fantastic. Um, as normal human beings is a good caveat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I just wanted to make sure we'd, we'd covered that one and we can happily get back into it if you want. But in terms of the, in terms of the environment, um, to pick up on a couple of things, um, the, the decision about not using any equipment is because I just, all I want to do is focus on that connection. And, you know, uh, I used a Pentax 6.7, which for anybody who's familiar with it, um, will understand it's a super heavy, but super simple camera. For those that aren't familiar with it, about the most exciting thing on a Pentax 6.7 is the battery check light that does go on and off when you press a little button. But essentially you load your film up you, and you make a decision about your shutter speed and your aperture and that's it. I mean, right. there are literally, there's literally nothing else you can do. So that really suited how I wanted to do this. Um, and I didn't want to be carrying lights around and all that stuff. And, you know, so I think people, I got a question this morning, right before I, our conversation from somebody who said, how is this lit? Because it's inside and I can't photograph inside with a Pentax 6.7. I just, I don't know where to start with that because it's like, well, you can, you know. Um, so it, it's not, I think people are, are so swamped with technology and like, in a way they're consuming too many YouTube videos because it's like actually just, just put all that away for a second and figure it out. And I think being resourceful is possibly the single most important asset to have uh, when you're doing this type of work. You know, you're constantly having to figure out whatever it is. And, um, it, you know, I, the, the, the simplicity of the approach is, is for me the key, whether it's the equipment that I used or the way it's shot. So to get to your point about the environment, um, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a quick story. Please. So there is a um, photograph in the book, um, which apologies to um, our vegetarian and vegan friends and uh, animal welfare folks, uh, is, a, is a photograph of a chap in front of a pile of deer skins. Okay, I'm not politicizing whether that's a good or bad thing, but it's a very big thing in this part of the world. Deer hunting is a very big thing. His name is Gary. Uh, he is the guy that you would take your deer to if you want it processed once you've hunted it. And he will take the meat, take the skin, separate them, all the rest of it. He was the first person I photographed. He was the person that I photographed first because I knew that if I didn't get that, include that important aspect of living in this area, that I would miss it at the end of the project because I'd have to finish the project too early for the, the hunting season. So right. I photographed him. I think it was it was November. It was late November, 2017. And he was the first person I photographed. And I made, I made 10 photographs uh, on a roll of film. 
and I got it process scanned, got it back, and I hated it. Really hated it. And uh, I spent a week or two um, trying to understand why I hated it. And fortunately, I'd gone back. I, I'd agreed that I would go back because I went on like day two of the hunting season when he said he didn't have much going on. He said, come back in a couple of weeks, so there'll be more, more going on. So I, I took him up on the offer. So I had another date. He was the only, I think he was the only person I photographed twice, actually. But the reason I figured out, I spent a week to 10 days looking at books, thinking about it, trying to figure out why I hated the first photograph I made of him so much. And basically, the first photograph I made of him inside his garage, there was a light hanging. There was a deer hanging on like a chain at the back of the garage. And he had an apron on. The apron had blood on. He had a knife in his hand. And I realized, and it sounds obvious now, I realized that the reason I hated the photograph was very simply because it was all the information was there. So as a viewer, there was absolutely nothing for you to do. All you did was look at it and go, okay. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. I just thought, that's why I hate that photograph. Whether it's technically good, bad, or indifferent, doesn't matter. I just hate it as a photograph because that's not what I'm trying to do. What, I'm, what I need to do is to express my own curiosity and my own sense of like uh, question about what's happening and who these people are and where they come from and what their backgrounds are and what you know what's going on. I need to do that in a photograph. And so I went back and I photographed him. So the one in the book is the second photograph series, the second photograph I made of him, but also the second in the series. And when he said there's more going on, I actually, I arrived and I said, actually, I want less going on. So I shut the garage door. I took the knife out of his hand. He just was wearing an apron and he was stood by the skins and that was it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for me, that's actually one of the more successful portraits in the book because Maybe I'm just too emotionally attached to the story, which is possible. But for me, it does that job of simplifying something. But at the same time, because of the way the information is presented, that it actually raises a lot of questions. And so, you know, you're saying, um, you know, what is happening in that photograph? You know, mm -hmm. why is he wearing an apron? Why is there blood? What is that pile that he's standing next to? And so... That became, if you will, the template for all the rest of the photographs. And, um, you know, so I decided that the way I would do it was to include environment because it's really important. And I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of skip to, to some feedback that I've got, a, a great deal of feedback that I received um, that wasn't, you know, what lens is that or what, you know, all <laughs> the technical stuff. But uh, so many people have said to me, you know, one of the things that they really take when they sit down with the book and they go through it is that they get an incredible sense of place, not only from the people, but when you've gone through the photographs, they get an incredible sense of place by virtue of putting the jigsaw pieces of the individual environments together and understanding what sort of environment we're in. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So again, individually as photographs, what I was trying to do is raise those questions and kind of pique that curiosity. But what I hadn't realized, a sort of added benefit, was that as a collective, they also serve to build up this kind of sense of place that I didn't need to photographically describe. In other words, I didn't need to have like a landscape shot of where we are at the beginning of the book. And there is an essay at the back of the book, which in words describes the, the sense of place. But 
I was really, I think that's one of the pieces of feedback that I've been most gratified by, um, which is, you know, the ability of the little pieces of information in the environment to add up to something bigger. Yeah. The way you're describing it and uh, the way that it came across to me on first viewing the images is that they very much work together and each individual image, I mean, there are some that definitely, I think depending on the viewer will stand out more than others and they'll be preferential to other images. But to me, it feels very cohesive. And like you said, it builds up each individual part is part of the story, which I guess is, is the end product that you're aiming for. I really hate to do this because you've just done, you've done well. You've done exactly what I would make fun of, which is people that talk about gear, because it's almost never a, a, a useful question. Um, but I, I'm I'm a little bit curious because I've watched. I'm very um, cinema focused. I watch a lot of films, especially older films now, um, and I'm very interested in decisions that are made in cinematography when it re- when it relates to psychology and there's two questions about gear and i promise you it's not about like which lens is sharp or any of that kind of stupid stuff one is the film stock that you used and did you know going in straight away like you had a go-to film stock that you would use or was that something that you you had to put a bit of thought into to try a couple different things out and see what worked and the other would be about the focal length that you're using to get that environment, but still get that separation. Yeah, I, I, just for the record, I don't, I don't mind gear questions. It just, it sort of, it's become a bit of a thing with me because I, I still get quite a lot of questions on Instagram and stuff like that <clears throat> about it. And I just, I, you know, the difference between your question and some of those questions is that your question is in the context of an overall conversation about the work. You know, where whereas it sort of gets a little bit samey if you know everybody, you know, people's first question is about the gear, yeah, as opposed to about the work. Anyway, so that's just my two cents, as I say here. Um, to to answer your questions, which are uh, good ones as far as uh, I'm concerned, are uh, the film stock. Uh, I I just got into using Kodak Portra. I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, I feel like I know how it behaves without, I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest expert by any means, but, um, and so I just started shooting it on Kodak Portra. I used either 160 or 400. Um, I ended up using mostly 400. I mean, it's, it's incredibly versatile, um, as you know, people get it. People who understand that will not need any explanation of that, but it's quite forgiving and very versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> The the film stock and the um, lens question are actually very much related. They obviously you need everything to work well together and to look good in the final analysis. But uh, you know, and I don't, I do very little to these. That's something else that I get asked a lot. I do very very little to these scans that come back. I mean, and I include cropping in that. Um, I try and do for this project. I've tried to do everything in the camera that I could possibly do. And, um, you know, really I do, I don't want to be sitting in front of a computer doing that work all the time. So, um, as far as the lens is concerned, I, uh, started with the Pentax six, seven, six by seven, actually technically. Uh, 
and a 105 lens, which has a maximum aperture of 2.4. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I really got to grips with the projects and I started it, I actually bought a second body and a second lens because I wanted to not, I, I, I feared being in the middle of the project and the camera failing on me or the lens failing on me and having no backup to continue the project. Uh, I've since sold the second body and second lens uh, because I'm not a gear collector, but that was the reason that I did that. Anyway, so I had the opportunity to try the 90 millimeter lens as well. I think it was a 90. Uh, and the 35 mil mill equivalents on these are, oh God, something like 55 mil, mm-hmm. something like that uh, on the 105, something like that. So pretty standard. Um, anyway, I just preferred the 105 to the 90, although the 90 is very, very nice lens. So I ended up selling the 90 and the second body. So now I still only have the, the original. And the reason that the questions are related is because I decided that I wanted to, after my first experience, which I've described of the guy with the deer, um, I wanted to make sure that the environment was there, but not in a way on such equal footing as the subject. So I did want to create just a bit of out of focusness um, to it, um, which I did. And I, I found I could successfully do that using that 105 lens. Um, the reason that sometimes I use portrait 160 is because in order to get the lens open enough, sometimes, uh, I just needed to drop the speed of the film on a few occasions, right? Uh, my go-to would be Kodak portrait, the 105 lens and shooting pretty wide open if I could. Uh, and if conditions didn't allow, I'd either, uh, change the film stock or move. Right. That's the other thing people forget, you know, if it's not working for you, go somewhere else. And I, you know, I've got a whole, a whole kind of thought process on on that as well in terms of location. So, which we can get into if you like. Well, one thing I would like to ask, especially with this project being very geographically poignant, is: Did you have any pushback, or did you have any sort of trepidation yourself about being a Brit? photographing something that's historical to a small American town? Uh, I had zero concern about that and I had zero pushback about it because again, you know, I think, you know, with a bit of thought and with the right approach and I, when I say the right approach, I'm including body language in that. Um, you know, it's what you say, but it's also how you come across, um, you know, your reasoning for it, your motivations for doing things, your connections with other people in the town who can legitimize you or, or no, not that's the wrong word, but can vouch for you. You know, I had, <clears throat> I had zero problem with it, really zero problem at all. I think, I think what it came down to was that here was a town of just over 5,000 people. And I was the one who was, you know, putting the, the considerable amount of work into research and photographing <clears throat> for everybody's benefit, hopefully. And I say that with all humbleness, um, for the future, you know? And so, uh, and actually I had some people, I funded the project myself, but I, uh, generally, but I had some people around the town who threw some money in the hat to help me process the film, which was lovely. So I got a lot of community support. So before you embark on these things, having that level of support is, is really a fantastic following win. I mean, then to go back to the sort of the beginning of this, you had, I think you said about 5,000 people in this, in this town just over yeah. yeah and 
I, I mean, I'm imagining no one's chipping in enough for you to take multiple roles of 5,000 people. So right. the selection of who would be important to this, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the relevance of the, the deer, I don't know, processor. The, rele- yes. the relevance of that person is, is, is there, f- there to be seen. Was it very straightforward for you to, to think who would most benefit this project in terms of telling the story about the town? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't ever want it to become what they call in America a checkbox activity, you know, where you sort of map everything out and say, have I got a deer processor? Have I got a fisherman? Have I got a lady that does this? You know, I never wanted it to be that. And I never thought it could be that because with 5,400 people, my job, as far as I was concerned, was to get a snapshot of who was in the town. So the reality is, though, having said what I've just said, is there are some people who are only here at the weekends because they come up from the city. There are some people who have been here, you know, their families have been here since it started. And there are some people who are more sort of Johnny come lately, like I, I would be considered even after 15 years. So um, basically what I did is I was mindful of those general categories without becoming obsessed about the the detail of like, you know, every single aspect of this, that, and the other. You know, my job, as far as I was concerned, was to convey what it was like, what the people are like, what the community's like at this period of time, in this period of time, um, in this town. And so I just set about kind of just contacting people I knew. And as I told you before, knocking on doors randomly, emailing people, all sorts of methods. I had a massive Google doc, uh, that I would kind of, you know, um, keep track of who I'd contacted. And if I needed to get back to somebody, I mean, again, this is probably in a whole other podcast, but I, you know, as I was driving around, I think there's 47 miles a road, 140. So anyway, there's all the road. I drove all the roads in this town and, uh, you know, I, I figured out different things. I saw more things than I could ever imagine seeing in terms of discovering like, oh, there's a house at the end of here. or And I could see where the light was at any given time of day. I could see some great backgrounds, some interesting people working or on their driveways or whatever it would be. And I would just make a mental note and I'd get home and I'd just add it to the list or maybe check out this place. And that was it. It was really about just being out there in the world with a small W because it's a small town of 5,000 people and figuring that out. And at at the end of it, I was curious enough um, to basically uh, do a count. And I went through all the people that I photographed, 276, and I figured out, okay, how many of these people did I, did I know beforehand? Like, Oh, Chris, I know he's my neighbor. I'll call Chris because he'll be game for it. Um, And it turned out that um, I knew about, 18% 18% of the people. So I forget what number that is, but let's say 10. So I knew about 50 of the people beforehand. Right. The other 225, 226, I'd literally never met them. They wouldn't know me from a hole in the ground. Right. Beforehand. So it was important for me not to make this a project about people I know. It was important for me to make this a project about who's in the community. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's something that I'd almost like to see it's weird because it's it's fantastic as as a standalone thing, but it's almost like the fascination for me with to to be see to see it be done in other communities that are vastly different that maybe yeah. ha- maybe have like 
different climate and a different sense of industry and so on, especially if we can avoid, I'll be honest with you, I absolutely hate modern times. I think modern uh, design is ugly. I think it's everything is very utilitarian. It's it's to see something that has character and has color and has age to it is is a lot of what makes it interesting. I think if you were to do this project in New York City, I would be interested, but probably not as visually interested because it would be too easy and it would it, not too easy, but it'd be too common. It's too much of a yeah. scene thing yeah. to see this done in, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed people in the past that have done projects in like really rural Canada or South America or South Africa or anywhere like that. It, to me, I think it's more down to my, again, probably come back to my lack of worldliness, but to see those things um, through a microscope as opposed to a generalization is what makes it so fascinating. And the visuals are fantastic. Well, I, I think I totally agree. I mean, the thing is, the mistake that I find a lot of people make who ask me questions about this project is that they're, on, and they're, they're trying to think about their own project that might be on similar lines is that they're making the mistake quite often of exactly what you talk about, which is, you know, you actually, <clears throat> in a way, my, my advice would be, start with something way more microscopic. Right. Because New York City, yeah, what's interesting about that? But, you know, it could be one street or one block in New York City. It could be one street corner in New York City. To me, that has way more chance of being interesting. Yeah. Uh, because the more specific you can get, yeah, you, you, might, you might disenfranchise some people, you might polarize people, but the work will be stronger. I mean, you know, my version of microscopic was, you know, as I said, 149 miles of road and, just over 5,000 people. That's all you need, you know. To your point, I think polarizing people can actually be very beneficial when it comes to art because you never really find a fanatic about vanilla. You need, you, you need, right. you need to create, uh, you need to have people not like it to generate the people that do like it. I think that's kind of how the universe yeah. works. I think if you have everyone kind of say it's okay, and I do think we are in an epidemic of okay at the moment. Like there's a lot of art that's being created for the sake of finances or just, or whatever, without a lot of soul put into it. Well, the restrictions make you better as well. The restrictions, like it's like having a camera that does nothing but take a photograph. Then you have to really think about how you're going to use that. When you're photographing in a more microscopic environment geographically, then those restrictions force you to have to think more creatively and differently about the problem. You know, it's like, you know, New York City is such a massive canvas. Just because it's there, it doesn't mean to say it's going to be good good to photograph. And it's been photographed a million times by a million different people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it, it give yourself the restrictions, fence yourself in and find a way out. I honestly, music to my ears, it's like, I, th I always feel like the, the best thing you can do to become more creative is to limit yourself. When you're given right. too many options, you can't focus in on anything. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with gear. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with genre of photography where they, you know, I'm not sure about, um, maybe we disagree here, but I feel like in, in England, we have a camera club mentality quite a lot of the time where one week you're this kind of photographer and the next week you're another kind of photographer. And I feel like through that, you can learn a lot of interesting experience, but you can gather more knowledge that way of, of photographing different things. But you, you end up where you kind of, you kind of your your expression. I think it was like ticking boxes, checkbox thinking. Of you're just kind of you know dusting stuff off the list. So 
one thing that stands out is obviously like the, I guess, the pre-production and the admin side of this, all the emails, the letters, the driving around, the conversations, then to have the photographs. Very quickly, when you were photographing people, were you immediately sending off those roles to be processed so you saw them or did you wait until the end once the project got rolling to do it all in one go? It really happened in batches, to be honest. Okay. So um, I didn't give myself the luxury of thinking, well, I'll, I'll shoot a roll, I'll send it, I'll send it off to be, you know, developed and scanned. And then if I don't like it, I'll go back and shoot again. I, my, I, I didn't want to go back and photograph people. So I would, I would photograph <clears throat> most times one roll per person, which on a Pentax is 10 frames, mm-hmm. sometimes two, occasionally, very occasionally three. Uh, and then I would sort of, depending on, <clears throat> you know, inevitably, depending on the time of year and what was happening, there would be an ebb and flow in the project. So sometimes I was sending off 20 rolls. Sometimes I was sending off two rolls. It just depended, but there was no, there was no strategy to that. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly laborious project in terms of the people that you have to, that's a lot of people to approach. That's a lot of people to then photograph. It's a lot of driving around. It's, a, it's all of the letter writing, like I say, the admin side of it. Then you're getting filmed back. You're making decisions about which images tell the story correctly. Then you put the book together. The, the whole project is nowhere near as probably simple as maybe some people would look at it because of the way that photographers can think where you're like, well, he didn't take lights, therefore simple project. There's, there's so much to this. There's so much effort that's gone in from front to back. Do you feel like when you came out at the end of it that you did it sort of light a fire that you wanted to go straight into the next project or you wanted to, to go and photograph something straight away? Or did you feel like that'll do for now? I'm quite tired. Like, I feel like I've really, I've really underlined a, a significant project and I can kind of sit back for a little while and contemplate it. Uh, good question. I, first of all, uh, I don't give a shit if people are worried about whether these lights are not for me. Mm-hmm. For me, if the photographs are good, then that's sweet. <clears throat> and I'm happy to hear that you feel it comes across simply. I mean, it was not simple. I mean, I think the elements of it were simple. There were just many elements which kind of complicated it. Um, but uh, I'm happy to hear that it comes across simply because that's basically my, that would be how I'd like to be thought of. Um, as far as the project thing is concerned, it is, it is interesting because, you know, I think, you know, you talked about the sort of mentality of the camera club and I can't really speak to that in England because I've lived there for 20 years. But um, <clears throat> I'll tell you one thing that I've observed in the, photo- in the photography community is that, you know, if you, if you finish with a project and, you know, bear in mind once we'd fin- once I'd t- finished taking the photographs, then we went into book production. So that was another year, basically. Um, so that's in itself its own project. Excuse me. Um, and I think there's this there's this kind of thing that happens in photography circles where, you know, if you're seen to have finished one project, that people's response is, "What are you working on now? What's your next project?" You're like, "Well, um, you know, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm coming up for air, basically." So yeah. I don't, I, I sort of, I've, I've learned, I think that's an experience thing. I've learned that I don't need to be like constantly projecting. Um, you know, I, I did, I, I did start another project right before the pandemic and I've continued through it, um, which I can describe briefly in a second, but I don't feel the need to sort of be, you know, constantly be able to explain what project I'm working on now, just because I finished the previous one. You know, I think you do need to allow yourself. It's interesting when you said uh, when we were talking uh, when we first came on uh, online about, you know, you took a two or three months off recording. 
you know, I think you have to do that. You have to take these spaces. You have to create that space yourself, fill up the tank again, you know, um, and, and off you go again. And it, it makes you, you know, you need to, you need to experience some other things and that generates new thoughts. Like, you know, I'm thinking at the minute that actually what would be really nice is just to find interesting people to photograph and not, not actually attach it like a Christmas, you know, not attach them like decorations to a Christmas tree, just like, I'm just going to photograph some interesting people. Right. And, you know, a lot of people take that approach. I mean, one of my favorite photographers is Alex Hope. And, you know, I think he does that a lot. He just photographs out in the world and that's it. He doesn't go out and say, I'm now photographing people who are wearing yellow shirts. Right. You know, for, for other people, including myself, that's worked really well having that purpose. So, you know, it's just different, different things for different people, but I, 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 I don't feel the need to really jump from one to the next with with that level of immediacy, um, you know, um, I'm lucky enough to, to be able to fund my personal work through the work that I do, you know, commercially. Um, and so I don't, you know, I, I, that's just how I do it. And I don't feel the need to sort of, yeah, be super subscribed to projects all the time. Does that um, answer your question? Yeah, hundred percent. And to, to just sort of circle back on my use of the word simple, I in no way intend for that to come across in, in a negative sense. To me... Oh, no, I, I, I take it as a compliment. Well, your images remind me a lot of the cinematography of Roger Deakins, and I love his approach, which is, you, you know, it's about telling the story and it should almost get out of the way of people enjoying what it is that you're putting in front of them, as opposed to, you know, trying to do wheelies for the sake of the fact that you can do wheelies and trying yeah. to show off for the sake of showing off. And th that's the sense I get. It's every image to me is, is diegetic. It's it, they, they all correlate to each other, but they also stand alone. What does alone. that word mean? What does that mean, Chris? I, uh, diegetic in the sense of like, it all feels like it's all part of the same environment. Okay. Right. It's, it's right. not, it's, it's very difficult. And I, I, I think as a wedding photographer, it's one of the things I struggle with the most is I have, you know, 10 hours to photograph a wedding and I start sort of middle of the morning, usually in artificial light because this country is painfully dark and we don't know how to buy daylight balanced light bulbs. And then I have to photograph a ceremony that's usually mixed lighting through to outside stuff that's in natural light and then in, back into artificial light at the end of the day. And my the hardest part of my job, much to the annoyance of people that think that weddings are terrifying experiences, they're really not, is actually trying to make things look smooth and in relation to each other. I don't want it to look like it was shot at four different days or in four different environments. I want it to look like it matches. And with this project, to shoot it over the time that you have done and in, in different weather environments, different locations, you know, different environments, different people and so on. Like the image of uh, Jeff Brown in the church yep. is the same story as the image of Steve McCagg by the, the digger. It's, yep. It doesn't look like it's not from the same story, which I, I, I know considering you're like incredibly well published and exhibited, this probably just sounds like I'm telling you well done for tying your shoes, but it's something I just don't really see a lot of in photography anymore is that sort of consistency of style, but also to create a body of work that I can live in as opposed to just look at one standalone image, like that image, look at the next one, like it, but 
there could be inconsistencies across. It looks like it could have literally been shot over the course of a week and on on like a very high production thing, but at the it's it's almost a contradiction itself because it looks simple and the photography doesn't get in the way of the people that are there. I'm not distracted by an unusual choice of lighting. I'm not distracted by, you know, trying to show off by shooting through, you know, a load of foliage to get this, that like it just it's simple but it's complex. And like that's like the the coolest thing you could do with photography. The fact that it's diegetic is amazing. Well I I I appreciate that. Thank you. Sorry I interrupted gone. My curiosity would be with would you see this because this is the one thing that's amazing with photography, and it's something that I've learned from doing this podcast, is that I can absolutely love something someone's done, and then they are indifferent to it because they had an idea at the outset, and it didn't, because of you know circumstances and, and limitations, it maybe didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. Did you feel that this was a successful project? Um, I did feel it was successful, um, and I'll qualify that in a second. Photographically, I just want to actually clarify something. <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned I, I'm, I forget the adjective, I, I forget the words you used exactly, but exhibited and printed and published Pub- and published and exhibited. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really feel that's the case. I mean, I really feel I'm still learning a huge amount. I, I, I hesitate to use the term emerging, but, uh, you know, I still feel I'm, I've got a lot to learn. And I'm, every time I go out and photograph, that's the case. I don't, I don't consider myself to be, you know, perhaps how you describe me, but anyway, that that's, you know, just semantics maybe, but, um, I love the fact, I love what you described about being able to live in the work. I, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that, that goes back to what we were saying about the environment that the minute you can, the minute you can get inside it and feel like you can move around inside it. I mean, for me, that is, uh, is a really interesting observation. I, 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 you know, and there's nothing better for me than to be considered, simple yet uh successful in terms of how work is communicating to me that that is what i'm going for and i think the the equipment is a thing and i i you know i i the the next thing that i've been working on since this actually i've used a completely different camera because i didn't want to get into i wanted to shape things up a bit you know i don't care about the cameras to be honest i want them to do a job but they're doing a job for me you know they're doing a job that i want them to do that I have to be happy with. And that's my main source of, uh, uh of kind of, uh, decision on whether the work gets out there or not. Um, uh, kind of lost my thread on what you asked me. Um, because I the want su- to go back the to successfulness of the project for, your, for yourself. So success, I mean, you know, I think that success for me is being on a podcast with Chris and Chris saying, uh, it's very simple, but I can get inside it. I can live inside it and I can get more out of it. That's success. Success for me is, uh, I've been very fortunate, lucky enough to have a book published, which, you know, I got 600 copies myself and I've sold the, pretty much all of them, uh, to 24 countries and 32 States in the U S um, which I'm very grateful for. And I could never have imagined because that was not what I set out. I didn't imagine that we would even do a book. I just was going to do some portraits. Success for me is that the town hall in Ghent and the historian Ghent actually has its own historian. Who's like obviously a part-time guy, but he, he, he's a fantastic, engaging, interesting bloke. And, um, I printed off, first of all, every single person who was photographed received a 
nicely printed copy of their photograph, which I printed personally and gave to them personally, 276. I also printed a second set of photographs, 276. They're all individually named um, and signed. And uh, we found uh, the town bought some acid-free envelopes and they found a nice box. And they have basically uh, received those prints from me. They've archived them and there is now in the town hall, a box of 276 prints with other information about the bicentennial and a letter from me and a certificate of authentic authentication. So that in a hundred years time, when somebody says, wow, what must it have been like in 2018 at the bicentennial when they're celebrating the 300 year celebration, they'll be able to go to that box and they will be able to find an archive of prints with people's names and dates. Uh, that's success to me. So I think it, it's success on many different levels. Um, without me sort of blowing a trumpet, could I have done stuff better? Of course, totally, absolutely. Um, uh, no question of that. Could I have, would I do the book differently now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I think you'll be hard pushed to find a photographer that's published a book that wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, I think you asked me if I, you know, about looking at the work. I mean, I think it's interesting um, I know a lot of photographers who publish books and most people don't really look at their book very often. I mean, I, I dragged a book off my shelf before this call in case, you know, we wanted to refer to anything and I hadn't picked it up for a good while, you know, so I don't like leave it out of my coffee table and look at it every day. I mean, you kind of move on, you know, um, but it lives there and it's, you know, it's an achievement and it is hard work. And, um, you know, for me, success is the gratification of doing it on a number of different levels, which I've explained to you. Yeah. And and I think as well, it can, success is defined by what you were trying to do to begin with, you know? So. Yeah. Although at the same time, you know, that the reality is Chris, that you, I think again, I, I interrupted, I apologize, but I, I think it's important to say, because I know a lot of people listening to podcasts such as this and other ones that I've done, um, you know, say, well, you know, how do you get started? Do you need, you know, you need to have everything defined. And they're, 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 they're literally caught in the headlights, you know? Um, and one of the hardest things about any of these things is to start it, just start it, you know, get out there, just start, even if it's the kernel of an idea or the, an atom within the kernel of an idea, because once you get out there and start, it will evolve. It evolved for me. All of my projects evolve. I, as far as I understand it, most projects for most people evolve unless it's a very tight brief and a script almost, you know, things evolve. So just get out there and do it. So, you know, I think learning and, and, you know, being flexible is really key to these projects. And we haven't talked about that, but I think it's really important to understand that. Well, it's actually my last question before we, we wrap up, because I've taken too much of your time, but, but what was the main thing that you learned through doing a project like this? What was, what was the takeaway, the, the biggest takeaway for you? I think the biggest single thing, and uh, I have to tell you that I came back, and I, I, this is not unique to this project we're talking about, the book. Uh, it's unique to most times I go out and photograph people, is that I'm always bowled over by how amazing people are. You know, we live in a seriously, uh, occasionally unpleasantly divided world where even people who you think could have a conversation about things they disagree on seem seemingly can't. And, you know, quite often 
in, in England as well as in the US and many other countries. You know, politics is split down the middle, families are split down the middle. But I come away from these experiences feeling so uh, humbled and amazed by how people are. And perhaps the biggest single thing is do not judge books by covers. Do not look at people and assume that you understand them. Uh, try and engage with them. And photography is my way of engaging with the world and with the people in the world. And every time I do that, I'm always amazed. And sometimes I, I want to kick myself for making assumptions that I shouldn't be making. Yep, 100%. The, the division is, yeah. It's, it's what makes the world a real treat at the moment, I think, on top of a pandemic and everything else. It's, it's oh, something goodness, I wish we yes. could work our way through. Um, I mean, I, I honestly feel like I could, I could listen to you talk about this for, for, for weeks, in all honesty, but I feel I always have this... <laughs> I'm not sure that would be good for you. <laughs> I always feel like I have this imposition about myself where I'm taking up too much of people's time. So um, I think that's a really nice place to draw a line under things. I, I'm even more excited now to take delivery of the book tomorrow. I'm very excited about it um, to add to my extensive collection of photo books. I feel like more people should be buying because it's so wonderful to have printed things uh, as opposed to just stuff on your phone. Well, thank you again for buying it. And I hope at some point we might get the opportunity to meet and I'll, if you, if you want, I'll inscribe something in it, of course. Oh, that would be incredible. Um, I'll definitely make What's a- your, give us a, give us a sense of your favorite book that you've seen in the last year or whatever. I mean, favorite books are kind of ridiculous question, but what, what's kind of, what's sticking in your mind at the moment, book wise, <laughs> give us a recommendation. Uh, so there's a photographer that's come on the podcast a couple of times. He had a new book called Skin. Uh, which okay. was large format black and white portraits of non-models nude in various okay. poses. And it was about them kind of being comfortable within the the, the things that other people would shame them for or, you know, stretch right. marks and so on. Um, I think that that book changed the way that I kind of viewed photography. And it also changed my view of film in it being more of a device of honesty as opposed to what, digital is which is more of a uh, more of a vanity thing and we're always looking right, to fix right. things and it kind of showed things and then uh mm, it's a, yeah it's a tough one because there's so many um well it doesn't have to be a new one just something that sticks in your mind i mean i'm picking from several i absolutely love okay one second i've got to make sure i get the title right <laughs> uh so there's a book called marilyn and me by lawrence schiller yeah, and I'm not a big Marilyn Monroe fan. Like I'm not. I'm indifferent. I'm not. I'm not a fan. I'm just. I'm indifferent. Um, but I am aware of her cultural significance. And unlike a lot of photo books about this kind of thing, it's about a very specific time in her life. It's about a very specific time in the photographer's life. And there's a lot of story to go with the images inside. So it's mm. in a in a to make myself sound as uneducated as possible here. It's very much a, a podcast and a book all at once, which is really nice right. because um, although I do like images that leave you to answer some questions yourself, these are very well-documented images. And it's just a very fascinating point in history, I think. Um, so yeah, that would probably be my, my, current, my current main read. Yeah, so let's, let's do the, the, the important stuff now then. Please plug the book. I want people to buy the book. I, I don't. I don't care if you don't want to plug the book. I want you to plug the book because I want people to buy. <laughs> I want people to buy photo books, and this is a, a, yeah. a fantastic looking set of images. I can't wait for my book. So please tell everybody the, the name of the book and, and the best place to find it. 
Well, that's very kind. Thank you. So the name of the book is uh, All of Us, with a sub subtitle, Portraits of an American Bicentennial. Um, so All of Us is basically what it goes by. And uh, my name is Richard Bevan. You can get it from the publisher, Daylight Books, which uh, uh, they're in the US. So that is easy if you're in the US or um, uh, dare I say, there are many other um, independent bookstores that still have a few copies, I think. But of course, you can also get them from the Amazons, whether it's uh, US, Canada, UK. And uh, I still have a few tucked away here. So if you're around here, I've still got a few. You can uh, direct message me on Instagram. And my Instagram is rich, at Richard Bevan. Uh, I guess that's about it. But I thank you again for buying it. And I uh, hope everybody does buy it, really enjoys it. Well, this this podcast is this particular episode is the exact reason I started it was to to learn as much as I can about the process behind someone doing something and their history. And this has been just fantastic to just be a part of. So I really do appreciate you taking the time. Please, everyone go follow. And I'm absolutely demanding people go buy a book, uh, provided you can still get hold of a copy. But uh, again, massive thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Good luck. You've got me questioning my position. Am I just filling out? Taking space, not with as much grace. Am I a second choice of all the not a Royce Royce? It's up to